Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows sometimes violence is the answer. Today we have Julia, Bianca, Zoe, and Kellen. And this week we're joined by a really exciting guest, Dr. Nimi Gavranathan. She's the author of a new book called Radicalizing Her, Why Women Choose Violence. Uh, Nimi, thanks so much for being with us. Do you want to start out by just briefly introducing yourself for the listeners? Sure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I sort of describe myself as a scholar activist, um, you know, work in, in many different worlds, but I run an institute at the City College of New York. It's called the Politics of Sexual Violence Initiative. Um, and the goal of the Institute is to um, take deeply embedded research and have it inform movement building, particularly around questions of how sexual violence shapes women's politics. Um, and through that program also, we run a training called Beyond Identity, which trains young immigrant women um, and U.S. minority women to be activist scholars, um, which has been running for about five years now. Um, and I'm also the publisher of Adi Magazine, which is a literary magazine to rehumanize policy. Awesome. Um, I think we'll say this many times over the course of this interview, but we all really, really loved this book. Um, I wanted to start out by asking just a little bit about your writing process, um, because there was so much great stuff in here. Um, how did you connect with the women that you ended up interviewing and how did you choose who to ultimately include in the book? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I first met women in the Tigers, as I talk about a little bit in the book, um, when I'm Tam Sri Lankan, but I grew up here in the US. When I went back to Sri Lanka as a kind of volunteerist of sorts, you know, searching for an identity and all that, and working with young women in a children's home at the time who a lot of them had left the rebel movement or they had family members in the rebel movement. Um, so I initially engaged with these women in that children's home when they were quite young um, and then sort of followed them throughout the years as I did different forms of work across the northeast of Sri Lanka. Um, the access to them for me was a little bit easier because of community trust, you know, and sort of being from that community and being able to while not having grown up there, but to have that immediate sort of entry point, you know, and with some of these women um, in other spaces in Eritrea, in FARC, I think uh, in Colombia, meeting with women there, what was interesting is that I built from a place of being connected to the tigers, and that was my entry point. And it's sort of in itself, the way I access those women speaks to the kind of global south solidarity there was at that time that a number of members of the FARC and in Eritrea knew of the tigers, knew of the other rebel movements and accepted me on that basis, know that, that she was already a part of this world that they understood and they knew and they supported politically. Um, the ones, the narratives that made it into the book were the ones who I could follow more continuously, you know, as you would imagine, of course, it's a war zone. There's disasters, there's, I've lost touch with a lot of women, a lot of women have died. Um, so the ones that ended up there were one, the ones that 
you know, were alive now that could consent to their story being told and the ones that I could consistently follow um, and the ones that are presented there just, you know, for you all and for the audience to know, everything written about them was sent to them first in their language before it was published um, in the book. So, you know, to do that with multiple narratives would be quite difficult. So that was sort of how the selection process happened. Yeah, I wanted to ask another um, question about the interviews. I was surprised when I read in the intro that the interviews spanned about 20 years. So I wanted to ask if you kind of had the same vision in mind for this book the whole time or like how your idea of this project changed over time as you were working on that. No, I mean, it started when um, when I was doing my PhD. So I think some of you, many of you academics uh, here, so it was a very sort of um, narrow conception of what writing could be at that time, you know, so it was that it was going to be this scholarly book towards tenure on, you know, the causal motivations of women, no, so something very political science-y. Um, I did write, you know, I wrote separately. I wrote, you know, I was never trained and do an MFA, but I wrote in other spaces, but I never saw that as sort of legitimate writing. I assumed it had to be scholarly in order to be taken seriously. Um, and it was through the process, I think, over the years and actually through the kind of emotive evolution of first understanding the distance from the academy to the people that they studied, right? And having a real sort of problem with that and wanting to bridge that. And then having gone through 2009, which was the end of the war in Sri Lanka, um, and seeing how, how cowardly, really, people were um, to stop the genocide from happening. Um, and understanding that this wasn't something that I wanted to speak to six people about, you know, who knew everything about this subject already and were simply sort of rehashing theories of, of something there, but I, I wanted to, I needed to be able to reach a broader audience um, in an intelligent way, you know, that one that wasn't simply pulling at heartstrings and, oh, isn't it so sad that all these people have died and all these women, you know, were fighting and, you know, but in a way that sort of built up a kind of political capital around the question of the Tamil struggle. Yeah, that's great. Um, I was reading the book really struck and appreciative, struck by and appreciative of your insistence that we focus on those structures um, that, you know, to borrow from the title of your book, radicalize her, like the forces that drive women to join radical or violent movements rather than trying to um, pathologize individual women fighters. Um, and just, just to draw from the, the the introduction, I think it was, you talked about a psychologist who saw an ex-Tamil tiger in jail who wanted to, quote, assess her level of madness, not the source of her rage, which is a framing that I loved. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about the importance of that framing um, to this book and, and to the way that you view the your subjects. Yeah, it mostly that that framing or the kind of need to reverse happened around the time I think that ISIS entered into the mainstream, right? Because obviously I study a subject in a tiny place and a you know, tiny island. Most people are not terribly concerned about what's happening to the Tamils in Sri Lanka, right? But when this kind of ISIS and women in ISIS and women in the Kurdish fighters entered into the public imagination, it was then that I was able to see how flawed and how, how sort of structurally um, restrained we were in our own sort of thinking to be able to see these women in their entirety, right? Every representation of them in the media um, 
even if it was a Kurdish woman, was either to suit a, a particular political agenda, right, or it was this kind of reductive mini biography of, of their lives. Um, and it just didn't match with the women I had spent years and years with, right? And so even when it came to the title, the publishers initially felt that um, the title was disempowering because they read it as radicalizing her means that there are these forces to this powerless her, you know? And so it took sort of a really long email for me to them saying, no, it is actually, it has to be framed this way because the entirety of the focus around female fighters has always been on these very myopic, very individual, she joined because she was sad. She joined because her boyfriend made her. She joined because she was crazy or she was raped and that made her crazy, you know? But nobody will talk about the outside structures, right? That created the conditions that put her in that place to be recruited into a movement or to choose violence, right? And so it was a reversal to say, it is you that is radicalizing her. And, and it is you that is always left out of accountability, right? Of this, it is always this vacuum where she simply exists in this context and, and makes this decision, right? Because of, of, you know, being brainwashed or something, right? Um, so it is to force a kind of accountability on the number and the sort of layers of factors, um, even the ones we don't think of, including kind of Western feminist lenses and interventions and development and, you know, the policy world, um, and even our, our imagination of, of gender and how how complex political beings can be, right? Um, so that was, it was an important, you know, I understood early on that that was a sticking point, you know, in understanding the book, um, but that this was how, you know, I wanted it. And, and you know, Beacon, Beacon was very, very lovely in, in listening to me. That's awesome. That's really well said. Um, going off of that point about sort of how we conceptualize gender, um, I wanted to ask about, there's this one point in the book where you mentioned this conversation you had with your friend Dilo about sort of how women fighters fit into the gender binary. Um, and I, I was curious if in your work and interviews with people, you came across any stories of trans or non-binary activists in these radical movements. Um, and and if not, why do you think that might be? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And I, you know, having grown up with Dilo, who's an incredible, if you haven't looked at his work, um, trans activist and performer, but having grown up alongside someone who had to fight to have their identity recognized inside one of the most restrictive cultural spaces, you know, I think that are out there and watching that kind of the need to break one barrier after the other after the other and the kind of exhaustion that comes from that, right? Um, for me, I was able to, to I mean, not only to learn quite a bit, but to understand that we were grappling with similar questions, right? Um, that when I was thinking about the female fighter, when I was trying to place the female fighter, everyone described her as too masculine or after she left the movement as not feminine enough, right? Both of which are a way of, of stripping complex identity, of course, you know, and politics being a part of that. So to me, this world of sort of thinking about gender as a spectrum, trans theory, has actually opened up a space for all female combatants to exist, right? In a way that's somewhat more comfortable, 
right, than, than being forced to choose in the binary, right? The ones who identify as trans, um, there have been some. I know that Delo has worked with uh, now ex-combatants. It would have been difficult, I think, inside the movement for that to come out. I think it would have been difficult in society in general for that to come out. And I imagine the few that Delo have encountered um, in our community back home in Sri Lanka, you know, are, are, there's many, many more, you know? So the few who articulate it, um, there is support, I think, regionally, and I think that's really beautiful. There's support from India, from trans movements there. There's support um, across the South Asian sort of subcontinent, but in these small communities, these small villages, these, you know, small worlds that people live in now, particularly under military occupation, where everything feels even smaller, right? Where you're, you're stuck in captivity and, and occupied territory. That kind of revelation is going to be very difficult. Um, but so, you know, my answer to the general question would be, I'm certain that I've come across trans and queer and, you know, gay uh, folks in Sri Lanka. They have not articulated it to me always. But, you know, sort of the broader picture for me being able to think through that framing um, is an important way of, of situating female fighters in general, right? It offers them a really productive political space to live in, right? Because they don't have to be attached to the constraints of gender and they're allowed to be, if I sort of situate them there in my imagination, they're allowed to be complex individuals. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, kind of continuing on the same theme about gender and radical movements, um, I wanted to quote from this section in the third chapter that I loved. Um, this book is actually full of really amazing interview quotes, and it made me realize just how rarely we actually get to hear from women fighters in their own words. Mm -hmm. um, so the part that I wanted to quote from, you write, quote, Priya had been thinking about why her interaction with men was so different inside the movement. I think because we all had guns. Priya didn't take up arms in pursuit of gender equality, but she remembers it as an unintended consequence of participating in political violence, end quote. Um, at the same time, you also mention in the book instances of women having to fight for inclusion in these movements, um, and even like men that they fought alongside being unwilling to enter romantic relationships with them or maintain relationships with them after active fighting has ended. Um, I'm curious what you made of those two maybe seemingly contradictory experiences coexisting for a lot of women in these movements. Um, and do you feel like you came away from writing this book with any more general kind of lessons on gender equality in political movements? Yeah, um, it's an important question. And it's one that I fundamentally believe remains unresolved. Um, we have never seen a movement that has been able to place with equal significance gender and race, gender and nationality, gender and, you know, Marxism. We've never seen a struggle be able to integrate these two, no? So for me, um, it's about two things. One is understanding the lens through which we see these women, right, from the outside. And so a big part of what would happen when I would talk about the movement or talk about the struggle is that it would be seen simply from the standpoint of women's liberation, right? And so 
so feminists on the outside would sort of dismiss this as not real politics or not real liberation because they were not fighting for women's rights, right? But can you apply that lens if that's not what these women were fighting for, right? And that's sort of the question to be asked, not to say these questions are not important, these questions are not, but that those questions are to be dealt with inside the struggle. It's not that these women were not, I also you know, don't wanna say that the women were not conscious and that there wasn't the operation of patriarchy. Of course there was in every single movement in Eritrea and the popcorn ceremony and you know, Sri Lanka, there was, there was the tigers, there was different ways in which gender continually revealed itself to be an issue, right? There was women who were the head of major battles, but they weren't involved in the political conversations, right? But this is to be dealt with inside the movement. And this is why I sort of always come back to this idea of, you know, in certain areas, is it easy to be a, a Sunni woman, a Tamil woman, um, you know, an Afghani woman? No, it's not. Um, but you won't die on that basis. You will die on the basis of being a Tamil or being a Sunni because you will be in those areas, because you will be in those mosques, because you will be in those spaces, right? So, of course, you're going to fight along the identity line that's under threat right? You're, you're under threat for being a Tamil. It's not awesome to be a woman in these areas, but you're under threat for being a Tamil. So that will be the primary fight, right? The nationalist fight. And I think, you know, the Tamil struggle is particularly interesting to me because nationalism breeds its own sort of problems with gender, right? So when I would meet, and I think I talk about it in the book, when I would meet female fighters in fatigues and boots, and they'd be putting up signs about what women should be wearing and that they should wear long skirts and they should have a hat, you know, to make sure your skin doesn't get dark and they should sit sideways on the bicycle. These were the rules the tigers had set forward, right? And so obviously to someone like me who has a, a Western vantage point, of course, so well, this doesn't make any sense, no? Like, how are you in the movement going around telling women to? And what they would say is, well, if this is what we're fighting for, right? If we're not fighting to protect Tamil values, then what else are we fighting for, right? So in this bid to fight for the nation, there has to be an idea of who belongs in the nation, of what a Tamil is. And that has to be anchored in gender roles. You know, that's, that is what the nation is anchored in, right? Is in gender roles. So in order to create the nationalist struggle, it has to be created from a base that has these very defined gender roles, right? So it's quite complex even inside the movement. But the you know more important argument to me is that these things are worked out inside the movement, but you cannot dismiss um, women's participation simply because they're not fighting for women's rights, right? It's still a legitimate form of political struggle. Thank you so much for that. Um, continuing with chapter three, I really like the John Paul Sartre quote you referenced, which reads in part, if the whole regime, even your nonviolent ideas are conditioned by a thousand year old oppression, your passivity serves only to place you in the ranks of your oppressors, end quote. And so I kind of had two questions that stem from this. And the first is related to Julia's previous question. And I think you touched on it a little already, um, but you talk a lot about the societal backlash that women specifically face for their violence. And one reason you stated for this is that quote, it is inside the overlapping circles of the moral righteousness of nonviolence and the entrenched beliefs of the inherent nature of women that the female fighter and her motivations are disappeared, end quote. And so I really liked how you called attention to this overlapping. And then later on you bring in how like intersectionality also plays a role. 
And so my question related to that is like, do you think that American media portrayals of women fighters in other countries, particularly those in the global South, tend to exacerbate the problems in the ways that their violence is portrayed? So like, in other words, do you think elements like racism, colorism, and xenophobia are at play as well, specifically in these media portrayals? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, if you think about the images you've seen, you've probably seen light-skinned female fighters, um, very beautiful Kurdish women with green eyes or, um, you know, the occasionally Palestinian women, you'll see, uh, you know, Colombian women, even the Colombian women that are featured are the light-skinned women. Um, you won't often see dark-skinned female fighters. You know, the colorism for sure is there. I think that you know, what I talk about as the myths around the female fighter as even the ones that are trying to be liberatory, the ones that are trying to portray her as a superhero of resistance are problematic, right? Because in order for her to be liberatory, it is still anchored to her gender and not her politics, right? So if you saw, you know, around the time of, of the Kurds fighting ISIS, there was these New York Times articles of, you know, women and Kurdish women fight sexism and ISIS. No, Kurdish women are fighting for Kurdistan. Kurdish women have always been fighting for Kurdistan. But that is not in the U.S. interest. The U.S. is never going to allow Kurdistan to exist, right? So it becomes diminished as these beautiful women, you know, the pink nails on the AK-47, who are fighting ISIS, which is in our interest, and fighting sexism by taking up arms, right? And that, you know, and then, of course, if she's, it's not in our interest if she's a terrorist, Right. There's a completely different construction um, of her, which is equally false. Right. And and the reason that I wrote, um, which is a piece in the Guernica female fighter series that I started called Monsters and Women, was because um, when I went to these conferences of counterterror experts talking about female fighters, it just felt to me as if it's, you know, it's, the piece is written around the Bride of Frankenstein, because it felt to me like you are constructing the monster that you then are going to defeat, right? But you've constructed her in your imagination, right? This monster who who joins movements because of, of pastel colors on Instagram, you know? Um, and so it's these two, two figures, right? That she's either the superhero or the villain, both of which don't allow for any sort of political complexity, right? Um, and they, they feed into the imagination in very, very important ways. And I, you know, I always come back to the editor here in the U.S. who said in a piece where a colleague and I were writing about why women kill, you know, looking at the reasons why women in the U.S. kill their abusers and also linking that to the women in political struggles. And he accused us of fetishizing violence, right? And that to me was sort of fundamentally this, the sort of gatekeeping American media approach to understanding the complexity of these women, right? That we were fetishizing violence unless it suits the US agenda. And then, you know, and then then they can be celebrated. No? Yeah, definitely. I think like one overarching theme in your book and I think in our discussion today as well that I've been noticing is that you're calling attention to the way that narratives are often flattened or made to be reductive. And so like um, another question I had re in relation to that was like, the quote that you pulled from Kimberly uh, Crenshaw, which is, we must contextualize any violence of the resistance in the violence they were resisting. 
Um, just to go off of that, I think there's a lot of like feminist scholars who do seem to have a broad understanding of like the importance of context and the importance of analyzing power. So when we're discussing violence, like when people discuss violence generally, do you think there's often some lack of nuance in the way that that violence is discussed, particularly when people fail to like differentiate between violence that punches up, like the tigers who are resisting state violence, and violence that punches down, like violence exerted by the state. And if you do notice that sort of uh, failure of like noticing nuance, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, of course, state violence has always, always goes without question, right? And um, it's a part of the state. It's, it's what is expected of the state. Um, and I think there, the question of nonviolence being valorized is particularly important to feminists, which is to say that I think that a number of feminists think a lot about violence, right? They're terrified to say that because it is, you know, the feminist movement has sort of crafted itself around this nonviolent as righteous form of resistance, right? As soon as you cross over into violence, it gets very uncomfortable, right? And then again, you're put in this position of, well, they're saying that, you know, she is condoning black violence, she is condoning this, right? And so you're constantly put in this trapped between condemning or condoning violence. Right, rather than understanding, or rather than getting to the point where it is irrelevant whether you condemn or condone violence, whether you understand it is all that matters. Right, I can say from the outside, like, oh, I condone the violence of tigers, I condemn the violence. For the women in these contexts, the women who are besieged by violence every day, and I hope that's what the book does, is to show the intimate, the layers, the everyday, as well as the macro, the big V violence that these women face every day that shapes their politics, right? That pushes them towards violence. If the state is communicating to you through violence, if that is the only way the state speaks to you, then eventually that would be the method that you respond with, right? And it's it spans the gamut from, you know, black women in the US purchasing arms more to formal resistance movements to women killing their abusers, right, in, in their homes. Those are all forms of resistance, all forms of violence, right, that because of the positioning that women are in, because of the violence that put them there, that put them in that moment to take up arms. And I've always sort of thought in writing about this book or thinking about this book, because I've seen in lectures across the country, across the world, really, the difficulty people have with grappling with women taking up arms. It's very difficult for people to understand that. So if you can get to the end of this book and not necessarily fully understand why women took up arms, but be able to get to that moment right before she did, where you could say, yeah, I could see where that became an option or why that became an option, right? A number of, of women who I admire who have read this book have actually spoken to me recently and said, you know, thinking about your book recently, like, yeah, why the fuck wouldn't Afghan women not just take up arms? Yeah, I, I just want to throw out that I absolutely love the framing that you just used there about condemning or condoning being irrelevant. And what matters is that you're, you're understanding the issue at hand. Um, and as somebody that teaches history and is constantly 
trying to get undergrads to like don't write me a paper about whether ronald reagan was good or bad obviously i'd love to read your paper that the thesis is ronald Mm. reagan is bad but like that's not helpful history writing the understanding rather than condemning or condoning i think is just a really great way to to frame something and i'm absolutely going to be stealing that so thank you in addition to forcing people to read this book i'm also gonna take that with me as well yeah, with students, you see it a lot. I mean, I teach at Columbia's Policy School once in a while, and man, <laughs> they, it's it's really like a, a really in-depth form of socialization, right? That this is how you look at the world, and this this worldview is so rigid and so embedded that even getting them, you know, we use a lot of mind maps just to sort of with whiteboards to get them outside of some of these framings, even asking, you know, what would be the difference between little V and big V violence becomes very difficult for if you've been trained in a particular way, right? Like violence is these things that you recognize, it's bombings, it's mass violence, it's, you know? Um, So I think, yeah, actually, you know, working with students on some of these questions is maybe the most important work we can do. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually wanted to um, go back. You referenced it briefly, but um, the quote with the analogy to um, Frankenstein, and I wanted to just read that um, excerpt for the listeners. So it starts, quote, though the female fighter is often seen as an anomaly, women have gone on to make up nearly 30% of militant movements worldwide. Historically, these women have been deeply misunderstood. I've heard the female recruits of violence described as a deviant or sociopath. Sometimes in disguise, she masquerades as a migrant. She is one of those people who is to blame for both her poverty and the poor ethical codes it creates. She is antisocial rather than a product of society's deep inequality. As in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the monster is born from the minds of her makers. She is both their creation and their enemy. Um, I really love that analogy and think it um, draws a really good point of kind of like the societal gaslighting around like what you were saying before is that women are seen as like crazy or like experienced sexual violence and that made them crazy rather than that having like this rage and potential violence to follow is like as you were saying a logical reaction to what's happening Um, and I was wondering if you could talk more about like how gendered violence leads women to join these movements yeah absolutely I mean I think that what matters to me most you know, obviously it's a small percentage of women who take up arms, right? And there's a large percentage of women in our country and and elsewhere who experience sexual violence. Um, So the more important question to me is how sexual violence shapes political identities, right? Um, And, you know, if you look at like a case of, let's say a village in Sri Lanka, like the women that I've known, if she's raped, let's say she's an ex-combatant, right, then she has to leave the village because that would put the village under surveillance still being there, right? Then she's not a part of community events like weddings or funerals because she's bad luck, right, because it's been out there. She, of course, can't get married, right? And she's a Tamil, so she's already outside the state. So you have this woman that's been pushed to this extreme form of marginalization, right? And we talk about extremes in lots of different ways, but not this, the extreme marginalization. She's all the way outside of society, family, life, right? Um, And then to bring her back, we want to offer her, you know, chickens and sewing machines and the other aspects in the book that I talk about, the development side of it. But from that space, right, it's not that a woman, I would never argue that a woman is raped and then automatically she's, oh, well, now I'm a nationalist, you know. But it is that you start to rethink the 
the particulars of your life, right? Why did this happen to me? Because I'm a Tamil. Why did this happen to me? Because my father wasn't home because he was abducted because he was a Tamil, right? Um, why is this the reaction because of my culture? Why am I ostracized like this? Because of the constraints of my culture and how it is, right? And all of that, I think the evolution of consciousness that comes from violence, right? The link between, you know, in this program, we talk a lot about identity as the identity you're born with or the identity that's formed through experience, right? And the identity that's formed through experience is always more interesting to me because that's where you build solidarity from, right? The identity born of experience rather than of birth. And so those experiences with violence shape the politics of women, right? And I think it's some of, you know, in the book, there is a, a poetic sort of interlude called The Trouble with Trauma or called A Chorus here um, about the Me Too movement, about, about uh, trauma and its limits in terms of political mobilizing, right? Because the reasons why Tarana Burke and Christine Ford were assaulted or were raped are two very different sets of reasons. Right. And so to me, it's not a mass movement. It wouldn't look like the mass movement that that Me Too is, which has its uses absolutely for mobilizing. But in the end, what we saw was that a woman in power, Suzanne Collins, you know, said, I don't really care about your trauma. I care about my political agenda, which is to build up homeland security and stop immigrants from coming in and this, that and the other. And I'm absolutely not going to vote on the basis of your trauma. I'm going to vote on the basis of my politics. Right. So I think that some of our thinking around sexual violence has become so tethered to trauma that it is a disservice to the bigger political movement, right, to the bigger, bigger struggle to deal with these structures of violence that women are facing. Um, but also, you know, the majority of the way that particularly early on when I started my research, sexual violence was dealt with was that, well, it makes women sad. It affects them psychologically, it affects them socioeconomically, that was a big one, even though the, the causal leaps there are very questionable. But, um, you know, so we'll give them bakeries and, and soap making and such, you know, and that's going to make them, I don't know, restore their dignity or some such thing, right? But it does nothing to end rape, right? And the reason that, that you know, we were just talking with a colleague yesterday about Angelina Jolie's um, you know, circus to end rape in London that I reference in the book is because that that approach to sexual violence allows a lot of people to not be held accountable. And that's that's why the approach is there, right? Because when you can focus on individualized trauma and the sadness of one woman, then you don't have to question the involvement of William Hague, who was running the conference to end sexual violence in perpetrating these crimes, right? Um, so that to me, that, that question, which differs in every context and in every woman, but simply to be able to argue that sexual violence has a deep political impact on women. And for me, it has been most useful to think about it as, um, as lightning hitting sand. You know, I sort of visualize it like that, that when lightning hits sand, it forms this thing called fulgurite and there's no two that are the same. No, but it's this sort of jagged shape, right? And I think about this shape forming inside of, of women, no two are the same, but that is the political identity, the place from which work should happen. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I had a question that was also related to how gendered violence is framed and namely how like 
gendered violence can be used to flatten violent women's narratives by portraying them as like victims who need to be saved. Mm -hmm. And so like this victimization, as you pointed out in your book, can then be interpreted by other people in other countries Mm -hmm. as a way to like warp the tenets of feminism to excuse or justify military intervention, which is obviously very dangerous. So I was wondering if you could say a little more about how you think these narratives about gendered violence could be reconstructed in a way that like both lends weight to their horror without making them see, making the women who experience gendered violence seem simply victimized or without their own agency to choose violence as a response to, as you said, their identity that's shaped by their experience. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing with that question is to recognize that a lot of what we see sometimes as misframing or, you know, um, problematic, we don't see as calculated, you know? And I think that's the difference is to be able to take that next step and say, okay, it's not just that that these well-intentioned people are, are portraying these Congolese women simply as rape victims, right? It's that there's a reason why um, these women have been portrayed only through that lens, right? And the reason, of course, goes all the way back to colonial and before that, right? Because in the darker nations, in the uncivilized nations, being able to portray women as a sexualized victim, if you think about the construction, you know, when I ask my students to think about what they hear in different places of Congo, of Nepal, they describe these women as sex trafficked women, the sexual victims, the gang rape, the, you know, early marriage, the FGM, everything is sexualized, right? But if somebody is a sexualized victim, you will not see them as a political actor. It is nearly impossible to do if that is the lens through which you view them. Right. And so not only is that happening, the argument then has to be it is happening for a reason. There's a reason that we don't want these women politicized. There's a reason that we don't want Congolese women's resistance being recognized. There's a reason we don't want Afghan women's resistance being recognized. Right. One of the reasons I started the Female Fighter series at Guernica magazine, um, which is an incredible series, is because I thought, okay, well, if I could pair these writers, you know, the novelists, who could get to the richness of some of these women's stories, the complicated stories, right? And put those on the page, um, then maybe we could get somewhere in this conversation, right? So even if it's difficult, and it is difficult, I mean, in in reading the pieces that came in from Boko Haram, um, it was hard for me, you know, because you have this perception going in of who this movement is or whatever, but I wanted to get past that to be able to understand what if there are women who became Boko Haram wives because they supported the ideology of Boko Haram, right? Which has been the case. What if there are women who support the Taliban? What if there are women who've joined the Pakistani police who believe in some of these these restrictions on women, right? How do we understand their politics as well, right? Um, and so, you know, I think, I you know, hope that a lot of these, a lot of these pieces work to counteract are all of the information out there, even the contemporary narrative that, oh my God, Afghan women now are in a terrible position. Afghan women were in a terrible position before, you know, the US put them in a terrible position, you know? Um, and so I think that sort of, and it's, it is a double-edged sword. It is difficult to ask people to see women in their political complexity because you might not agree with them. I don't agree with them sometimes, you know? But doing that work, that kind of dismantling, that kind of revealing, to me, is the only 
way to counteract this massive barrage of the construction of the third world woman in this way? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think this next question I have is more general, which is as I was reading the book, it just made me think about the difference between neoliberals and radicals normative claims about resistance or like what the most strategic or best ways to resist are. And I think like specifically neoliberal leanings are how we get these like anodyne toothless portrayals of figures of resistance who were famously radical, like the framing of Martin Luther King Jr. as a peacemaker and obscuring his remarks where he like very clearly supported socialism Mm -hmm. or like taking one of Angela Davis's recent interviews out of context and arguing that she said that everybody should vote for Joe Biden and thereby ignoring her extensive writings against the state and neoliberalism. So I was wondering, do you think this like neoliberal narrative twisting or flattening once again is also at play when we're discussing the erasure and censure of women's violence? Yeah, I think it goes back to your earlier question on nonviolence, mm-hmm. right? They will always, particularly with gender, the gender and nonviolent overlap can't be overstated. You know, like, so the aspect of radical women's politics that A, either supports the U.S. agenda or B, can be read as peaceful, those are what will always be extracted, right, for public consumption, because that is what the legitimate form of resistance is, right? If you take someone like Aung San Suu Kyi, who is, you know, sometimes when I struggle to get people to see why women take up violence in the resistance, I have to switch tactics and say, okay, well, let's take this peaceful idol of yours, right? Let's take this woman who is who is the symbol of democracy and peace and, and all of that, right? From the outset, she asked to be taken seriously as a politician. From the outset, she had Buddhist nationalist politics at her base, right? Um, so, Maybe she herself wasn't violent, but there is a violence in her politics, right? That we were not able to see. So it's it's not on simply the side of the left, it's on it's on both sides, right? That we're not able to see the violence in women's politics, right? We're not able to see the violence in Samantha Powers, right? We're not able to see the violence in um but all of these have narratives, if not overt actions of violence there, but they're almost always sort of erased if they're either going to be used to sort of you know in the way that you're commenting on idolize or fetishize you know the a female fighter in a particular way or they will be used in the other way which is to simply defang the woman you know and and to to get rid of the complexity of her demands even someone like Malala right if she's asking for you know a challenge if she's challenging the drones the US drone policy that's not going to make it in the news her political perspective, right? It's going to keep coming back to her identity as a woman versus the Taliban, which again reinforces these multiple narratives that the U.S. wants out there, right? So gender becomes just a very useful way to further dig in U.S. policy interests, Western policy interests, right? And it's very appealing because they can speak to a broad public imagination of gender and it works very well. So to me, you know, a lot of the style of, of the writing, the reason I use Bright of Frankenstein, the reason I use the Stockholm Syndrome is to try and unearth the imagination of people in ways that they weren't expecting, right? Without this head on kind of, you have to see this as this is who these women are, you're wrong about this, you know? In an increasingly divisive political climate, that doesn't work. 
right? So to try to understand that most of us have these entrenched sort of gender prejudices that political actors are playing on in their representations. So that's what has to shift is we have to go in and kind of excavate the minds of people on gender. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I liked what you said about um, like it not necessarily being about agreeing with other women. Um, this is something that I've definitely said before, but just like the idea that feminism isn't about like agreeing with all other women or liking other women. It's like seeing them as complex people who you disagree with, like on a political front or like dislike because of certain like political ideologies, not like because they're women. Um, feminism, so I, like, not ladies supporting ladies. <laughs> um, it's sometimes disliking women, but just like for good reason and not because they're women. <laughs> But anyway, um, yeah, as, as a red diaper baby, I wanted to ask about um, a lot of the women that you interviewed had family who had also participated in radical political movements. And I was curious if that was true for most of the women you spoke with, kind of because as you were talking about like the connections that you had into getting these interviews um, and what do you think changes for people when uh, someone they were close to and other members of their family participated in movements? Um, I think that becomes very, very contextual, no? Um, if you're talking about a context like the Northeast of Sri Lanka, you know, in a number of sort of asylum cases that I've had to do as an expert witness, they'll say, well, were they affiliated with the Tigers, right? When you're talking about a social movement that comes from a society that is that small and that sort of trapped in these areas, everybody is affiliated, right? And at that time, particularly that the time period that I'm looking at, um, everybody knew somebody in the movement, right? They, everybody I spoke to, everybody. That's a little bit different, I think, than the question you're asking of, you know, the impact of sort of politicization and socialization inside the home. I'm not convinced that these young women were growing up in homes where they were being spoken to about political struggle. Right. I, that didn't always happen. And women were not always included in those conversations. Right. I have seen that in other spaces. Right. You have seen um, conversations about, you know, Marxism happening in the FARC, you know, in family homes and those conversations and not that the time period, especially for the Tigers that I'm looking at, it was kind of more of an urgency. Right. So it was like this um very quick education on, on liberatory politics that happened inside the movement there was a socialization process inside inside the movement um but certainly you did see many members of one family joining uh the struggle and it also becomes this very difficult question of sacrifice you know it's you get to this point in any sort of resistance struggle where it's you've sacrificed this much, you've already sacrificed one daughter. Um, do you go backwards or do you just keep going because the sacrifice was too great, right? So I've already lost one daughter, this better end in something meaningful. So then the rest of us will join, right? Because that sacrifice was so huge, it was so, so gutting that you can't stop there and go the other direction, right? So the family sort of recruitment was definitely there. Um, particularly amongst young people. I mean, there was two sort of sets of recruitment. There was the more educated university level connected to the ideology of nationalism to struggle working with, you know, Indian um, 
people who were training the movement, all of that. And then there was the lower level, sort of the ones of a different class, but who were facing the brunt of state oppression, who sort of took this immediate, like, you know, this is my only option to protect my village is to, to take up arms, right? And eventually sort of came to a political realization um, inside, inside the movement. Um, so, yeah, I think the political education didn't always happen in the household. I think for many of us in the diaspora, it did. Our political education happened happened at home because there was a time and space and, and lack of almost dying every day to allow those conversations to happen. No? So many of us were politicized inside our homes. And when I talk about, um, you know, the way that they, the media has looked at like Bangladeshi women from the UK joining ISIS or, you know, that what again gets left out of their sort of mini biographies is that the legacies of violence live in all of our houses, right? That we hear every day growing up as children about the people that were left behind, about family members who were disappeared, about somebody who, you know, nobody can find now about somebody who's died, that if you grow up in that environment, whether you're in the UK or you're in Sri Lanka, you will be politicized. Children can be politicized, right? Um, so those conversations, I think, happened outside of the, the urgency, the life or deathness of the war zone. One other thing I wanted to ask about was there are these moments throughout the book where it kind of seems like there are these gaps or loopholes in state violence based on gender. Um, you mention um, like some women being released from prison a bit more easily once they're quote unquote de-radicalized because it's sort of assumed that they were tricked into joining. So maybe they're not as dangerous. Um, I'm just curious if you saw any ways that women were able to sort of use that to their advantage or benefit from that sort of sexist um, state assumption about them or on the other hand were there any sort of specific gendered forms of state violence um that you saw women fighters experience more than perhaps men do sexual violence for sure the women more than the men experienced sexual torture i think um was pretty equally applied to both the belief in that sense that might have actually weighed more heavily towards men because the belief was that men had more, this is again talking about the Cotter who have been taken captive, right? The inside state captivity, um, that the men had more information than the women did. Um, but in terms of, of women manipulating gender, uh, it happened quite a bit. I think that, that women are very good at um, understanding the perceptions of them and using that towards their their own political um, agendas. There is, I have a few few academic papers um, but that I hope are written in a way that are accessible, but there is one that I have with the co-author, Zachariah Mampoli, that looks at how women under the Tigers were able to manipulate culture to get what they wanted politically, right? So if they were going up to a detention center where their husband was, let's say, a wife of one of the Tigers, um, you know, culturally, if someone is pregnant or someone's, they would be softer, right? So they would, you know, pretend that they were pregnant and they would faint and have access to to their husband in detention. Um, or there was an ex-cotter who I met who was in a village and she was raped by a soldier. And this was after the war. And even though her husband told her to tell and to report the soldier and all of this, and it wasn't a, a shame question, 
she decided not to because the village was doing very well as a whole because the soldier was sort of allowing a kind of irrigation you know system to come into that village where there was more water in her village than in other villages right so her decision not to tell became for me a form of of politics right so she made a calculated decision that i would rather the entire village do well right um so not just for the fighters, but for women in general, I think sometimes we're too primed to look for resistance in the kind of rah-rah revolutionary, you know, in the streets, right? And we miss these forms of political agency that emerge in captivity, in complex situations that are constantly revealing that women do not need to be empowered, that they have politics, that they have power, even under very tight constraints, right? And I think that process of looking for those moments is very instructive and, and it's it's very, it opens up, particularly for a next generation, ideas of political possibilities that weren't there before, right? Because if you just look at this entire population as oppressed or under military rule, then you're not able to see that that even in captivity, women are, are twisting to find freedom. Yeah, absolutely. This reminds me a lot of um, a project that my um, PhD advisor was working on. Um, she writes about the Civil War in the United States, but um, she's been working on a project about the Union Army and the Lieber Code, which was sort of the first modern codification of the laws of war. Right. Um, right. And the way that the Lieber Code treats women is as total non-combatants, um, sort of entities like children to be protected. Um, and it doesn't match at all with the realities of what was happening on the ground on either side with women participating in various ways in war efforts. Um, she's particularly writing about the ways that Confederate women worked, and white Confederate women obviously like worked their asses off to... Um, uphold the confederacy to uphold white supremacy um by aiding and abetting the um, war efforts of the csa and the fact that the union army in the aftermath of the war had was literally unable to deal with women as actors in war because of the way they themselves had conceptualized gender and particularly the gender of white southern women um anyway i'm also going to give her your book (laughs) Um, I think she she would love it. Um, but I wanted to conclude with a final, just purely aesthetic question, um, which is about the cover of your book. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, listeners, you can Google it. Um, or if you're listening on certain platforms or follow us on social media, you can see it in the cover art for this episode. And I just wanted to know how you ended up with such such a beautiful and evocative cover. This was also a fight um, for those of you for those for those of you looking to get books published. I would always go with the small press because you usually win on on the fights. Um, but you know, and and a particularly conscious press, which I think Beacon is. Um, the art to me, it had to be Tamil. I wasn't interested in a kind of gendered, uh, you know, general look at at, at gender and violence. Um, and I was very fortunate because of the magazine, because of at Adi Magazine, every issue that we publish, we look for young artists from the region, from you know these spaces, who read the essays or the poetry first, and they create curated pieces for the magazine, right? So we've had this sort of influx of, of incredible young artists, and Oshin uh, Siva was one of them. Um, and I pushed for her, you know, and I think when it came back, <laughs> 
people were like, oh, might be too much, you know, but to me, I saw everything, you know, in what she had put there. I saw the third eye, I saw consciousness, I saw the tiger, I saw, I saw all of it um, in her artwork, right? And, and the book is nothing, or the most important thing is that the book push your political imagination, right? And that's the reason it's written in the way that it is and the style that it is. It includes poetry um, and art because I don't know exactly what's going to open up your political imagination, right? But if I keep sort of throwing all these things out there, something has to to resonate, right? One thing may resonate more than the other. The art or the poetry may be more than the narrative text. But hopefully you put the book down with your imagination expanded and and it doesn't matter which part did that. I love that. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's safe to say that was the case for all of us reading it. Um, we're coming to the end of our time, sadly, but I just wanted to ask if there's anything else you wanted to share before we wrap up. Um, and do you want to share how listeners can check out more of your work, maybe? Yeah, I mean, um... I'm just, I'm very grateful for you all reading it. I know that we all have, have long reading lists. And so even when you want to read something, finding the time to do that, and it's also gotten harder to read, I think in COVID or to focus on reading. So I'm very grateful that you took the time to read it. Um, uh, my work, I have a website that compiles most of the work on theaviarchy.com, but I think I am most, most proud of, of the collective project. So I hope that people look at, the Guernica female fighter series. Um, they look at Eddie magazine. They look at beyond identity, what these young students are doing, their political work. Um, I'm not, yeah, I mean, for me, I situate myself inside of a, a collective, you know, political project. And these are sort of manifestations of, of my politics, but in conversation with so many other really incredible activists and writers. Um, so I think those, those three spaces are, are ones that I'm very proud of and and people should look at. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. Um, this has been a really great conversation and we're so glad that you could join us. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Hope you all enjoyed it. I definitely feel like I learned a lot. Um, if you would like to support political violence by women and non-binary people, you can give us money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. For the um, FBI listening, that was a joke. Just to yes, be clear. just for legal reasons, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you do join us there, we have a Discord, we have a reading group where we've been reading um, some really great books that I think pair well with this one. Um, and we just started a Dungeons and Dragons game. So hit us up if you want to join that. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Email us, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. And you can check out our website, seasonofthebee.com. Uh, if you like what you hear, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks. Love you all. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch.